but I, of course, I want to continue working and improving the race. For me, it's a great way to stay within the sport and almost at the forefront of the sport. We've still got many areas to improve in the men's race, the women's race, public rides, other events coming into it. I also just love being with my family, riding my bike, staying fit and healthy. Welcome to Anything But Square, the Fed Square podcast. In today's episode, we're sharing with you Deakin University's 2019 David Park Adoration, held at Fed Square's Deakin Edge in May 2019. The annual David Park Adoration, which honours the significant contribution of Dr. David Parkin OAM to Australian society in leadership, sport and education, promotes the advancement of public knowledge by exploring the challenges and opportunities for the sport to act as a driver of social change. The annual David Parkin oration, which honours the significant contribution of Dr. David Parkin OAM to Australian society in leadership, sport and education, promotes the advancement of public knowledge by exploring the challenges and opportunities for sport to act as a driver of social change. The 2019 David Parker narration featured a fascinating conversation between sports broadcaster and journalist Gerard Waitley and cycling legend Cadell Evans AM. And it is a pleasure to be sharing it with you now. Settle in, grab a cuppa and enjoy. What sort of student was a young Cadell Evans who would probably have rather have been on his, on his bike on the dirt roads? Most certainly for the first few years of my high school, I wasn't looking anywhere close to being a doctor. <laughs> then I took up cycling and uh, found my balance in life and that's where um, being, being part and, and, and everything that, um, that Dr. Dr. Parkins, I think, stands for education, sport and I was heavy in sport, but in the end it was my education for life and um, honestly um, I never had any idea that cycling would take me so, so far, I won't say around the world, I'll say around the world, uh, I've lost count now, and um, Dr. Cadella, honorary Dr. Cadella Evans, <laughs> well I, I really, really, that was far, far beyond where I thought it could ever take me. You do have a beautiful line that, that you've written. It's amazing how far two wheels can take you. Do you still have that sensation now as years on from your competitive days, just how far a simple, a simple idea of riding a bike could take a man? Um, I really had no idea how far two wheels could take me and uh, really when I started riding it was... Um, cycling the Tour de France, being a professional cyclist, it wasn't even known or even accepted in Australia and, and that's where I just didn't bother telling people what my dreams were because everyone told I was foolish for trying. But um, my question was, well, what do I need to do to become a professional? I'll train. Well, how much? Okay, I'll do it. And, and that's where it started. But it really, it started as a dream in the early 90s when I took up cycling and um, I remember watching um, my first Tour de France was Miguel Indrain's first Tour de France on TV. We had the little 25-minute highlights package a day, a day late yep. um, of Miguel Indrain riding to his first Tour de France victory in 1991. And I think, I think it was my mother who asked me, actually, oh, what would you like to do one day? And, oh, would, I'd, like to try, I'd like to try and ride the Tour de France. <laughs> this was, of course, it was um, 20 years later that things would come, things would uh, align. But, um, you know, it started with a dream. But then what... Um, to get there and the work that it took and of course a lot of sacrifices to make but all learning experiences is what sort of prepared me for, for everything thereafter and, and now stepping away from the sport 
uh, I notice the more time passes from my last race, the more perspective, I, or the, uh, I don't know if the more perspective, but the slightly broader that perspective's becoming, and that's where I look back and think, wow, what a great opportunity I had. We'll tease some of that out as, just tell me, as most people who watch the Tour de France think, I'd love to go on holiday there. How does a young man decide I'd actually like to be on the bike? Um, I had a very single-minded uh, single focus when I was, when I was young and um, when I decided that uh, yeah, I want to be a professional cyclist, what does it take? I sort of committed my life to that and um, so basically for, especially my teenage years, it was school, eat, sleep, ride and I, I really became very focused in that but it was actually fantastic preparation for later in my career, just time management, being efficient. Being focused, making sacrifices, and it was just, it's just all part of the all part of the learning process. In all that you owe, Mum, you're in a handful of Australians who are instantly recognisable by their first name. So Kylie and Elle probably wouldn't have held if it had been Darren Evans or John Evans. As Cadell has served you well. Uh, it has. I hated my I hated my first name for the first few years because every time you had a relief teacher at school, they'd call the role and they're like, what? And, um, but now everyone in Australia can pronounce it correctly, so that's quite... Um, <laughs> so that makes it a bit easy to live with. The concept of being a household name and the reality of it. So you are a, a living, sporting treasure. We shared the journey with you. We marvel at your deeds, and you are unique. You are the first among equals. What's the reality of, of living that? And how people are, and I've seen it firsthand, people are drawn to you by the inspiration and the achievement that you provided in front of our eyes. I always looked at it in, well, a couple of different angles. One, I'm just a guy who rides a bike. I try and do my best. Sometimes I win, but usually you lose in a bike race. You start in 200, one winner. You know. um, and then on the other side of it, um, I think as an athlete I saw early, I think, I think it was probably a lesson from one of the first professional cyclists I ever met. Finally, I met my first professional cyclist as an aspiring 15 or 16-year-old, and I was really quite disappointed. Yeah, I thought, if I ever become a professional, I'm not going to be like that. And that sort of maybe led to the realisation that um, as a role model, it's, a, it's an honour and a privilege and something that should be really respected. And so, um, so you should um, really honour and respect that. Um, of course... You can't detach yourself from yourself, though, so sometimes it's when you're chasing after, and I don't know, changing nappies at restaurants and <laughs> things with a kid or something. <laughs> it doesn't always fit in, but anyway. I expect it is a big reality because I, I, I've known you just a little bit, uh, and cycling can be a lonely endeavour. I suspect you probably wouldn't mind just anonymity, and yet your, your feats have you as recognisable everywhere that you go. Um, I think one of my, my greatest uh, assets in becoming a good bike rider was my contentness just to be by myself and the, sol the solidarity of cycling I actually really enjoyed. A lot of people didn't like it, but I'm happy to go out and ride my bike for five or six hours. In fact, now I can't wait till the next time that I can do it. But that was a great strength, but in the end we're, um, we're born with a certain character and if we're reserved and introverted and private, um, that doesn't actually ever change. <laughs> So um, I, 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 do I, I do have a, a large gate on my house and a um, little camera, and so I, I'm selective <laughs> about who I let in, uh, who, rings the, who rings the bell. Put it that way. I, I, I certainly like my privacy, and I appreciate that if some people could respect it sometimes. But um, it's like I said, it's been a, it, it is an honour and a privilege to, to, to be a, a role model to people, and that's where um, 
having the race and so on, that I can continue in some way, um, continue hopefully, hopefully to inspire future generations. And the idea of having the whole nation at your back and the potential of pressure. So I think about Australia too was a boat it didn't know. Winx is a horse, beautiful, she doesn't know. You knew. What did it mean to you? What did it do for you? How did you rationalise it, particularly in the years where winning was a possibility? I, um, the, I, as an athlete, I put a lot of pressure on myself all the time, and some, maybe sometimes too much. So if I had excess pressure, it was normally neg it had a negative effect on me, so if I had it from the team or something. But I, um, one thing I, with the country and the country watching me, one, I was in the other side of the world, mm -hmm. I was at work, while everyone was watching TV, I don't know, say the, t the famous time trial in Grenoble in 2011, um, I was kind of had my mind elsewhere. I was focused on something else, so I didn't quite realise it. But also at the same time, I love. Um, I think we're the greatest sports fans in the world. Not only do we f often cheer for the underdog, but everyone, a lot of people followed my journey. But I never felt pressure. I felt we were on this journey together, and we didn't know where we were going to go. So when it did come together in 2011, I felt that we all arrived, and I really. So I really enjoyed that. It was I, for once. Pressure was a, was a good thing. I had I had a lot of friends on the on the on the ride with me, and and that was um, I think a really uh, that that really helped me helped me through and to, to keep persisting. And now today, still today, people tell me I arrived at Melbourne Airport yesterday, and the guy from customs told me where he where he watched the time trial from, and I was like, oh, that, that's really nice. We're still we're still yeah. living this dream. It was 13 minutes to one on a Sunday night, Monday morning. You got a taste of it. I can't remember what my start time was, but it was the first <laughs> right. The first time check was at 4.2 4, 4 kilometres. And 13 minutes to one when you drew level with Andy Schleck and we knew. Um, and then there was a, it was a day, about five or six days later, and it was here. It was here at Federation Square where you got the demonstration of how much it meant to people when all of Melbourne, it seemed, rolled out in yellow. So um, I've just ridden the Tour de France. I was a little bit tired and jumped on an aeroplane and... I think same thing. Um, are people going to turn up? Oh, don't worry. So I arrived <laughs> at the airport. So I, I arrived at the airport, and there's like a three-story high banner, a banner with my picture on there. Congratulations, Cadell. I thought, oh, well, oh, everyone was watching. And then, of course, the, it was just, um, bah, it was beyond uh, words to be in the middle of this. Uh, we couldn't fit any more people. I think there were 30,000 people here, and to be in the middle of it all was just was something yeah, far beyond, um, yeah, like going back to that. I never, didn't think two wheels would take me that far. Fortunately, I had my bike with me to ride. Yes. <laughs> How much of those three weeks in 2011 lives vividly in your mind? So thinking back through the first stage, two-thirds of the field crashes, you're out the front of it, you stalk the yellow, there's the battles with the Schleck brothers, there's riding Contador off the wheel, there's the time trial, and then there's the glorious ride up the Champs-Élysées when you nearly fall over holding the champagne. How much, how vivid is it for you? Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I remember it so well because I've been asked a lot of questions about it and I've written quite a lot about it as well and that, for that is my memories. Of course there are moments in a race that you never forget and uh, when, I, when I sat down to um, write an, an autobiography I actually, I think I checked the internet for the spelling of place names and the names of the riders in the breakaways, the rest I remembered from, yep. is just written from memory. So when you're living there, breathing it, 
sweating it, you can feel it in your legs. Um, it, the, all of the races stay really strongly in your mind and then from the moment after the, I think, getting to the Champs-Élysées onwards, all of that's a bit of a blur. So the day that Andy Schleck knows that you can win and he tries to settle it in one stage, can you close your eyes and remember the urgency? Do you remember that was, that was the day where you had to chase it down? Yep, and those, funnily enough, um, the thing that, I'd, I'd been second in the Tour de France twice before, and I, I was by less than a minute, and when we go to a, an event that takes around 85 hours over three weeks, that's quite a close margin. Um, fortunately, through those losses, I'd learned these lessons where stay calm, and that was what really, that was my best preparation on the day. Okay, I had great legs, and, um, and anyone who's a cyclist would understand when you're riding, closing a gap to the breakaway, and you've got the entire Tour de France field on your wheel, well, 10 of them are left. And on the race radio, it comes over, Contador's struggling, you've dropped Contador, you've ridden Alberto Contador off the wheel. It sort of gives you a lot of encouragement, mm -hmm. considering it's probably, probably my generation's best climber. But, but those, um, it was really thanks to the situations that I'd been in previously in the, in the losses, staying calm, staying focused, and, 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 and of course the, the experience, the race experience, how to pace myself and so on, but above all it was the stay calm under, under enormous pressure. You mentioned, t so 23 seconds and 58 seconds were the two margins coming second in an 85 hour event. H how does a man make peace with that, particularly before the man knows that one day he wins the race? Uh, before, before, before the 2011 tour, well, I felt I very much, I felt that I deserved to win a tour. Um, unfortunately, it's very hard to make, I didn't make peace myself until 2011. Yep. Um, in summary, um, what happens is, I'm a guy who rides a bike. I wake up in the morning, I go and buy some bread for the bakery or I get my hair cut. But when you go to the bakery, the baker asks you, can you win the tour? When you go to the hairdresser, the hairdresser, when you go to the supermarket and you're sort of like, I'm trying to escape this. I don't mind it while I'm on my bike, <laughs> but I'm trying to detach myself from that because I'm focused on doing the work that's required to, for the next Tour de France. But when you're just surrounded by it, and of course, every cycling interview I sat down with for the next year or two was, was always this question. And, and then funnily enough, by 2011, I wasn't even considered a favourite. I think I was 28 to one or something. I heard a friend of mine put a lot of money on me. Um, after I'd started my season and started winning in the season, and, um, and, and that's funny that I'd sort of got forgotten about. And, and, and then from beyond there, um, I felt we really, really did deserve that, that, that tour in 2011, but it was also the stars aligning and funnily enough, well, of course, it would have been much nicer to have three Tour de France wins than one. Um, it made it so much more special that it happened with George Hiddenkopi, Andy Reese, the BMC team, these people that were involved. It just made it, it just made it so much more special when it finally came. W would you have been unfulfilled if it hadn't have come? I may possibly have been unfulfilled. That's, yeah. a, that, that's a scary thought, but... I think I think I think I, I would have, I probably would have gone out of the sport with a little chip on my shoulder. <laughs> well, the another, other side to another, that is another chip. <laughs> the other side of that is you have a glorious CV. It, it almost doesn't matter because the Tour de France is the unique achievement in Australian sport. Do you 
So it is the pinnacle achievement in your career? Oh, certainly on a, on a sporting level, it's certainly the one where um, nine years, nearly nine years, eight years on now, and we're still talking about it today, yeah. so it must be pretty important. Do you, um, ever, do you ever, ever have moments where you go, I, I, I went to four Olympics, so was the world champion. Um, mountain bikes oh, went as, 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 a, as, a, as a cyclist, of course, I'm proud of my achievements. I'm, I'm probably proud of my versatility and my longevity. But, um, of course, the Tour de France is, is what goes beyond cycling. Everything that I did other than the Tour is big in cycling. Most things are very big in cycling, but the Tour de France is the only thing that went beyond cycling, and that's where so many of these having the race, being on it today, what, what, what that brought, the attention of, especially, I think, for me to go beyond sport, even beyond my own sport, beyond sport, but into sort of the public life of Australian people around the world is really, that's in my mind what, um, thanks to the Tour de France, on a sporting level as a dedicated athlete, uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't have been satisfied with my career if I had not won it. And this leads us to the path of social change, Cadell. When did you understand um, both the responsibility and the opportunities that came with being the Australian who won the Tour de France? And then how do you, how do you plot your course mm. from there? Um, I think the best thing is just to be yourself. Because if you're not an actor, it's hard to be anything else. Um, but like going back, re making this realisation, and thanks to this first professional cyclist that I met that treated me really bad, I think I was riding here at Beach Road um, <laughs> in about 1993 as a junior, um, and that being a, a role model is an, is an honour and a privilege and it should be respected, but it can also be used to do great things. So um, I think thanks to that realisation that later on, piece by piece, things happened. And, and funny in your career, as a, as a writer, you, you're focused on your rest tonight, how well you can train tomorrow, how good you can be for your next race. So you're very, very focused on, like anything in specific, you're very, very focused on the details. You don't often get to step back and say, oh, I think I'm going to go here and there. Once, once a year after the season, you sit down and plan your season and hopefully you can stay to the plan. But um, these things just came about, but thanks to the work you do so thoroughly in one area, that opens opportunities in others, and it's been a, it's been a really nice journey. How strong a sense did you have always of your moral compass? There's obviously an overlay to this. There's, there's a line from a movie of a, a decent man in an indecent time, and maybe if we look back at the period, it was an indecent time. Is how strong was your moral compass? How did it drive you in, in those circumstances so that the overall didn't get the better of you? I was really fortunate to have good people close to me and um, I especially thank, of course, leading into my cycling career, of course, and my family. We're not very big, it's just my mother and I. <laughs> um, so I have to say to, to her, of course, that led me to, to cycling career. But then I was really lucky to work with some really good coaches. And that was, um, that was really, it was thanks to them. And, and even going through the whole AIS national system was really, really kept me going, working in the right direction. Because also I came into the sport where it was a time where it's a sort of, I was, I was really in the minority. Um, for, for a peer, or at least my attitudes were in the mi minority, and, um, and unfortunately we're, we're, um, we're conditioned by those around us, and if you're in a sport and, 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 and the moral comp where the moral compass is, has long been lost and forgotten, then, then of course it's um, difficult to, to, to stick to your guns, and, and then 
stick to stick to your plan. Fortunately, good coaches, good teams. I was I was for most of my career I was in in good teams, and that was of course where the, a lot of the pressures come from from athletes, especially at the top level. Um, and fortunately, the sport changed around me, and before I knew it, thanks to Professor Aldo Sassi, who I worked with, who I always thought was ten years ahead of himself, yep. we were right there, ready when the sport changed, ready to go. Did you ever resent the sport for either what it was or when you look back? A couple of moments, a couple of moments. I had one moment, um, anyone who follows cycling, I, I was in 2009 uh, Tour of Spain, the Vuelta España. It was a, actually a really good chance to win the, um, to win the Vuelta España and through a series of events, someone who... I, I lost the leader's jersey to someone who maybe, in my mind, should, should have been banned in that period. And it was one time, because of a sporting result, I got into the team bus after the stage and I cried. And it was the only time that I ever cried for like losing a race. And, um, and that was one moment of my career. I was like, I don't deserve this. Funnily enough, the week after that, the Walter was the World Championships. And if you keep working at it, things, things, things go your way. Do you have a sense of pride looking back on, on the road that you chose? Oh, absolutely, and that's where um, it's funny how, how the world changes and, and we're speaking of like the race and social change and where the world's headed. We're headed to, I think, on so many counts in such a, such a much better place. And that's where um, I think the, the big difference today is, I think it was someone on social media said to me at a point in my career, oh, how does it feel to have won more Tour de France than Lance Armstrong? Well, that sounds kind of good, doesn't it? Of course, I'm, I'm speaking about a comment that was made maybe three or four years ago, but if you'd made that comment 10 years ago, but that's the, the, the history's still the same, but of course, the world in, in so many, on so many levels, we're, we're, we're going to a much more uh, fairer, fairer world, I think, for, for, for nearly everyone. A few countries that are a bit behind the eight ball. I'm, I'm not speaking about sport, but um, beyond, beyond sport. But, um, but I think it goes back to, to working with, with people who had vision for the future, and I have to thank particularly Professor Aldo Sassi for that. So from a moral compass to a social conscience, do you, um, you, you clearly feel connected to the world, and, and while you spend some time in Australia, you, you live overseas, your connection to Australia, I take it, is very strong. Um, certainly, um, I listen to ABC podcasts every day. Uh, um, I try to get, try to certainly stay connected, and, and of course, come back whenever I can. But um, I think um, a teammate I had back in the national team was he would say about himself: "You can take the boy out of Bondi, but you can't take Bondi out of the boy." And I always think, "Well, you can take an Australian out of Australia, but you can't take the Australian out of the out of the, out of the man or, or woman for that." And I feel um, so. It was what Australia created me, and I am who I am. And, and in going into a sport where it was quite, um, as a non-European, I was a little bit the oddball. Um, of course, I'm going to be the oddball. I was born in Catherine in the Northern Territory. I lived in an Aboriginal settlement. And I was pushing my dump truck through the sand in the, what was all, almost the desert, or going for rides with a dog, uh, riding on my bike with training wheels with a dog following me in, a, in, a, in, in, in an Aboriginal settlement in Northern Territory. Of course, I'm going to get to a European classic uh, or the Tour de France and be different from most others on the start line. How much of that lives with you when, when you think about Indigenous Australia and the challenges that are, are still very raw in this country? And that's something, of course, I think even being outside of the country, you, 
you see it a bit more even. And um, of course, traveling around the world, I see other countries face similar problems. I'm um, just recently having tra traveled to South Africa and, um, and <sighs> complex problems. Someone far cleverer, cleverer of I may not have the answers, so I don't, I don't know where we can go, but it's certainly one area, I think, of, of our country. We, we certainly need to um, be honest with ourselves, and there's a lot of talk in the lead-up to the election about it, but we, we need to take more action. Health, exercise, nutrition. So this is where Dr David Parkin has been a an absolute leader with Beacon University along the way. So, um, when you turn your mind to Australia and the way the country is at the moment and cycling's place in it, when you started down this path, what, what did you see and what did you want to influence? When I first started, I um, discovered my sport, my calling. Um, not many people understood that. Not many people stood my sport. I was still learning about my sport. This is pre-internet. Go to the high school library, find a book that was written in 1965, and there's one cycling book in the library. Read every word on it. Try and learn about it, and the same for sports nutrition, weight training, all these. All this information was hard to come by, but just try and educate myself to, to, to see how far I can go with this, with this passion. Um, and then, of course, the sport has changed. Um, the sport within... I speak the sport at the high level, of course, has changed. The sport within this country has changed just as much, maybe if not more. Um, and I, I look at this, the sport, of course, we speak about the Tour de France, but cycling is a fantastic solution to a lot of problems that we have in, in society right now. Transport, infrastructure, childhood obesity, and um, long-term health. Um, disease and so on, prevention and so on. Unfortunately, we've just had a few fatal accidents in the last few weeks on, on roads in, in Melbourne, and this is, I find, unfortunately, it's very saddening, very discouraging, because here are people really trying to do the best thing, not just for themselves, but for people around them, and, 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 and no, one, no, one deserves, no one deserves to die in an accident. And so, unfortunately, I see the sport at the moment on the elite level, uh, in, in, in our sport of cycling, I think we have, probably on the women's side, more hope in the longer term future, um, in the development of uh, the junior athletes right now. There's a bit of a lull within Australia, but we have some young professionals coming through for the sort of mid to short term, I say, for the sort of next five to six years, some, some real hope to watch in the elite level. And then on the, more speaking about people riding to work, um, one big thing about um, having a race, and especially with the women's race, is um, I like to, um, hope that over time we can eliminate a bit of a stigma of riding a bike and wearing a helmet and riding to work so that we become a country like Scandinavian countries or Holland where riding a bike becomes much uh, less unusual or becomes really just the norm or if not the norm, something cool to do. Because um, sometimes it is. And, yeah. and, um, but really sort of change those stigmas and, 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 and so that... The, cycling at least in the short term for problems we've got with traffic and mobility especially in inner city melbourne that maybe maybe cycling can help us here with that bike paths tolerance of drivers driver education the roads. respect on the roads i think respect from 
co-workers, drivers, and um, and and I'd really in in the lot sort of longer term, I'd really like to think that we can have more kids riding to school because it just does so much, especially for growing bodies and learning independence and being independent. And I think with Dr. David Parkins, probably what he's been working on for the last 20 years, sport has so many great lessons for us in life. And I, I always said that, uh, or sport taught me, sport is a great lesson for life because you can lose on the field but you can't always afford to lose in life, so better to learn on the field. There are hot spots around Melbourne on Saturdays and Sunday mornings. I suspect there's a few guilty here, people wearing lycra who probably shouldn't be wearing lycra because of Cadell. We could probably have a show of hands, but we don't want to embarrass everyone. I'm kind of proud of that. Yes. It's, it's, I did wonder about that. So when you, when you ride around Barwon Heads and you see those who have taken up the bike um, for enjoyment, for exercise... I suspect not for competition at all. It, can you? Is there just a little glimmer of what you've been able to offer? Do you think in that? Going back to what we were speaking about before, where um, when I started in the early 90s, if I was riding up King Lake or something, and I saw a bike rider, I was like, oh, "What's he doing?" Well, you would see one. Now, if I go out and I see a hundred on a sunny Saturday morning, it's fantastic. That's that's been the change in in my sort of 25 years in the sport, nearly 30 years now. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to like to think that I had a contribution to this. Um, I, I hope it continues, and it, and it will continue to grow. I'm sure. Um, the legacy piece, so the the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. Um, what was the nub of the idea? Trying to find the right, the right footprint to put down. Having done um, a lot of races. Um, been in a lot of races in a lot of countries around the world and seeing the races that were successful, knowing the races that as a rider I love to do, I sort of somehow came to, I had a lot of ideas in my head. Now thanks to the Victorian, uh, Victorian government, I was free to first express those ideas and then we were able to follow through on them. And at that time, and our, I think our first time we sat down and discussed this was some years before the, the first race in 2015. But um, some of the ideas were a bit unusual, <laughs> but, um, but, but they believed in my ideas. Victorian, Visit Victoria believed in my ideas and, and we followed through on it. And in the end, um, I'd like to think we were just maybe a little bit ahead of their time or we gave a little bit of a, a push and a shove, a wake up to other race organisers. But we, um, I'd like to think that we've also created a bit of a um, domino effect to other races around the world in, in including the public ride because the public ride is something that's for everyone of all ages young, old, in everything in between fast, slow and then of course um, having the women's race and I say if I, excuse me if I may correct Professor Jane DeHolland it's the Deakin University women's road race <laughs> uh, let's be clear on that but Deakin University has just been the most amazing partner and I think um, if I, if I had a hope to see five or ten years ahead, I think, I think Jane was already looking ten or fifteen years ahead. Yep. So it's just been fantastic to, to, to work together and we go right past the, we were, the finish. That we, the one K to go is just in front of the Deakin University offices on Geelong Waterfront. So it's really so, such a perfect fit. But that's been, um, that's been oh, it's just been such a helper for all. And speaking about the, seeing the riders on, on the road and how many more riders I see now, one thing, thing, young guys, but especially seeing young girls out in groups riding for a choice of exercise, for me, that gives me most satisfaction. Um, I, I, 
cycling, I was lucky to fall into the sport and it gave me an amazing opportunity in life and it, it, it's given me my life. I just hope that if cycling can help other people's lives, I, I hope that they have the opportunity to do it as well and whether they dream to go, a young, a young guy or girl dreams to, to race the Tour de France or the Olympics or it's just riding to work every day and just being a bit fitter later in life or, or fending off cardiovascular disease at, at whatever level, that's where, that's where I hope that, that, people, um, that people have the idea just to, just to try riding and, and that's where cycling can bring uh, improvement in life quality to so many. It wasn't a given that a women's race would be part of the road race, that this is something that you believed in and that you drove. And now, I think if you were um, inventing a race like this around the world, the women's race would be a natural part. This is, the, this is the shift, but it takes people of power and vision to make that shift. Why was it essential in your mind that if you were going to grow a race, that there would absolutely be a women's division of it? Many reasons. Um on a sporting level, um, more the races, the, the women's um, field peloton deserves better races. But um, for me, it was also a big part of um, men's cycling is really well catered to. Women's cycling isn't. This is not only a good thing to do for the future, but this is a great opportunity for us as a race to, to be the first to be or to be different and and have a have a, a point of difference. In the end, the women's races every year, from the first kilometre to the last, been absolutely fantastic racing. The men's race sometimes has a few lulls, <laughs> so we've got to make a few adjustments for that. But um, but it's been a, a, a huge pleasure that the uh, we have a um, the Torquay town of Torquay put on a um, welcome to country for all the all the all the female riders who come come into Torquay before the race. And they're coming from all around the world, so it's quite a quite a unique experience for them. But to see how happy they are to be there, and they get they get all their rip curl and quicksilver gifts, and they love the chocolate. They love the chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Our race girl also goes past not only goes past Deakin University head offices, but also goes goes past the Great Ocean Road chocolate factory. So, so um, <laughs> the girls love that. But um, to see that they're so happy to come to the race, because that in my mind as an ex-rider is really important. When you have the best people want to, the best riders in the world want to come to your race, then, then they want to race. They also want to win it. Then the race creates its own, on a sporting side, creates its own its own competition and, and anima. Um, and then seeing the other um, the other race organisers around the world adopt the same sort of plan has been a pleasant. I'll just give myself a quiet pat on the back <laughs> for that. For the the movement of gender equality and how you've observed it over the years, and not just limited to cycling, you will have seen it not only in Australia, you will have seen it more broadly. How has the world shifted a little belatedly and then rapidly over the past, say, three to five years? I'll say I've seen it more in Australia and less overseas. Okay. <laughs> um, I spend spent a lot of time in uh, Europe in the, in this in, the, in my adult life and. Um, on some things they're so far ahead and other things they're so far behind. Um, um, I think um, Australia and America are really leading the way in professional fields and, and I think um, what's been the, an amazing driver for it is just the, um, Hollywood actually, at least what we see in Hollywood. Um, let's not go into the details there but um, and, and these role, mo role, role models that the, the big screen the gi gives to the world, and that's where um, that's where um, countries in Europe are um, very tied to their traditional 
they have long traditions, so it's probably going to take them longer to change. We're, we're making big gains, though, I think. What does the future hold for you? Do you think about a, a large mission in the future? What's, what have you got in mind? A large mission? Um, I, I've gone from a dedicated athlete with goal setting and plans and to nearly every minute of tra training every day being planned to working towards goals <laughs> one week, one month, six months, one year, two years, to um, life's just really good as it is. I just want to keep on going like this, but um, of course after dedicating a, a lot of my time and energy to sport, I, um, I go and do like primary school pickups yep. and uh, I, I usually ride my bike. Um, there's, no, there's no parking at my son's school. Um, <laughs> you're better to ride your bike. Um, always wear my helmet, try to set an example. But, um, but it's, um, I just try, I'm still trying to slow life down to be honest. It's like a it's like a big heavy train that was going really fast for a long time. So I've still got the I've still got the the brakes on a little bit. But um, but I of course I want to continue working and improving the race. For me, it's a great way to stay within the sport and almost at the forefront of the sport. Um, and we've still got many areas to improve in the men's race, the women's race, public rides, other events coming into it. And um, but um, I also just love being with my family, riding my bike, staying fit and healthy. When you get on the bike now, and you're on your own, what, what does it mean to you to be on that bike these days? A time of peace, reflection, and um, much needed relief. When your boys, you've got a young son and a baby, when they get to an age where they find a dream, as a 12 or a 14 year old, they watch something mad on telly and go, that's gonna be me. What will you say to them? How do you pursue your dream, regardless of how unorthodox it might be and without precedent? I'll try to do everything to give them the, at least the knowledge, uh, whatever open, open whatever doors of opportunity I can, within reason, because we've all got to learn to work. But um, I, 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 just, I hope that they find that dream. And of course, that dream is a moral, ethically correct thing to do, no matter what it is. And, um, but I think as, as, as parents, of course, we all have hope and ambitions for our children, but I think it's best to um, lead by example to them and um, just show them all the opportunities that are available to them and encourage them when we can and tell them when they're, tell them when they're doing something wrong. <laughs> Remind them how far two wheels can take them, hey? Absolutely, absolutely. It's um, my son at eight years old. I think he sort of he sees it, and he actually really liked riding. But I think he might actually be intimidated by cycling now. Uh, we went and watched Milan San Remo this year together. Actually, I, I don't know. I still haven't been to that many races as, as a spectator. But but standing there on the side of the road with um, with my son, my my two sons was really quite an amazing experience. Julian Alaphilippe happened to the, the winner. We met afterwards. He was really polite to my son, so I was like. Perfect role model, thank <laughs> you. He <laughs> made, made my weekend for me as a, as, as a father, that made my son's weekend, so that made my weekend. But, um, but, but um, <clears throat> I, uh, they t the children teach you a lot. I, I'm, I'm still learning. <laughs> no, I, I think I forever will be. Yep, we'll never stop learning. Well, to us, to all of us in this room, to all watching on the stream, to all 
of Australia, you'll always be Cadell. You'll always be Cadell on the Champs-Élysées. You'll always be Cadell at 13 minutes to one in that time trial when we all knew that an Australian was going to finally win the Tour de France. Congratulations on all you've done and congratulations. Thank you, Gerard. Thank you. That was the 2019 David Parker narration featuring Cadell Evans, and we hope you enjoyed it. A very special thanks to Deakin University for partnering with us to bring you this episode. And we look forward to working with them to share plenty more content from Deacon Edge in the future. Keep an eye out for a new episode next Wednesday. And remember that you can stay in touch with us by visiting fedsquare.com and signing up for our newsletter or browsing the virtual square. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>